0: This season of the VMP Anthology Podcast is sponsored by Marantz.
1: A great balance of warmth and smoothness while maintaining tons of details. It's basically responsible for playing the soundtrack to my childhood. These are real words spoken by real Marantz fans who are some of the most passionate audio lovers in the world. When you spin vinyl on a Marantz turntable connected to a Marantz hi-fi system, you'll understand why Marantz is one of the most legendary hi-fi companies of all time. And why their fans are so passionate about that warm, rich, legendary morant sound. Check out all the latest Morantz gear at morantz.com. That's M A R A N T Z.com. Or see what their fans have to say at hashtag It's
0: over. Over. My, my,
1: my good thing is over. over. The masquerade is over.
0: Welcome back to VMP Anthology: The Story of Stax Records. I'm your host, Andrew Mustardorfer. Thanks for listening to us this season as I bounce around the mid-south talking to people who know Stax best. You've already opened your box by now, and now you're probably wondering what you're doing here. Well, Stax closed in 1975, as we established on the last episode, but the road to Stax as it is today, a label and a thriving museum and music academy, has 45 years of history for us to catch up on. As I mentioned in the first episode, the Stax complex at 926 East Macklemore Avenue in Memphis today is not the same Stax that was there in 1975. It took a lot of work, mainly by a Stax writer and office worker named Deanie Parker, to deliver what I think is the best music museum on earth the Stax Museum of American Soul Music. In this, our sixth and final episode of the season, I sit down with the museum's executive director, Jeff Kolak, to talk about the museum's mission and how Stacks went from a studio to a pile of rubble to a museum. So, like, how did you end up at Stacks? The old fa- I mean, the
1: old-fashioned way. I you mean, applied know, for Applied for, for the job. Um, no, I mean, I, my background's in... Um, I wrote my master's thesis on soul music in Indianapolis Okay, and worked in, then had a degree in public history and worked in museums, but always sort of worked, I mean, worked music into programming and exhibitions and such. And that really started, um, at the veterans museum when we were doing, uh, we did our we did the first major exhibit about Vietnam that the museum had ever done, and we had 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 interviewed some new some new new veterans some veterans that we hadn't spoken to before took in some new collections but what we saw was we had this a bit we saw that we still had all these divides, especially in a city like Madison you know and between the anti-war protesters and the veterans and the anti-war veterans and the guys that thought we should have never left and so on and so what we kind of discovered along with doug bradley and craig werner you know and the, and the work that they did with vietnam veterans is like music is this bridge that we can music is something we can use to bridge the gap and so we started doing these music programs and all of a sudden we would start we had you know a number of vietnam veterans and it was like okay this they're they're talking now like they're not arguing they're talking
0: mm-hmm. and
1: yeah they might not like that song or they might but they're at least it's a common it's a there's still some common experience here, or it would be, you know, the difference between the officers and the grunts. And if you were there early on versus and you were there later. And so, but it was like the first entry point for us. And so it just started like, well, let's just keep adding music, keep adding music. We put out, a, um, and we did a bunch of programs. And then the last year I was there, we worked with, um, uh, Amanda and Alan Ragell or at a group, Compass penny. Okay. They're around town quite a bit now they live in they live in Tennessee now too they, yeah they live in Knoxville and um, but we did a we released a single um, um, had a, just pressed a hundred cop couple hundred copies where they used Civil War um, letters and created two new songs yeah I think on, I remember this yeah yeah, yeah. and um, and then so we put out the single and they did a couple shows and it I mean, it was super cool so basically the long story is music's always been a part of what we were doing so you came, when I interviewed at Stacks, it was like they they had already, you know, built up the tourism part, which is, I mean, our lifeblood, but they needed programming and, and, and started thinking about collections development, that kind of thing. And it's like, well, I'm a nerd and, you know, it was one of those, you know, I didn't have to study the Stacks part. Like everybody else that I interviewed, had probably had to study for Stacks. It's like, mm-hmm. what, what do you guys want to talk about? You want yeah. to talk about Daryl Banks? me yeah. talk about Daryl Banks? Man, yeah, I, I actually I
0: did liner notes for uh, his, we reissued his record. I'm yeah. I love like, that record. Yeah, it's so good. Um, yeah,
1: another one who got well. He was he murdered? Yeah, he yeah, he, he was. He was
0: yeah. it, well, it was. It's one of those situations where it's like. Uh, a police officer shot him, mm-hmm. but it was like, apparently he show. it was like his girlfriend was now seeing a police officer. He showed up to confront the police officer mm-hmm. and the police officer said Daryl Banks had a gun. So he shot him. So it's like, uh, you don't really, nobody knows what actually yeah. happened, but yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a great record. Totally underappreciated. Yeah. From that uh, early, from that early run of stuff that they put out after the Atlantic split.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I guess how can you kind of give people the story of how the Stacks, you know, facility came into being like because, you know, the doors closed in 1975 Mm -hmm. and then it's kind of been a long road before it became what it is now.
1: Yeah, it's very uh, I mean. It's a, it, I wish it was a simple linear story, but nothing at Stacks is simple and linear, which is what I think makes it so fun to talk about mm-hmm. and, 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 and share stories about it. So, um, yeah, Stacks was closed on December 19th, 1975, federal agents come to the, come to the facility, tell everybody they got a half hour to get their stuff out, lead Al Bell out in handcuffs. Um, a little more than a year later, they have the bankruptcy auction, um, on the corridor steps here in 1977. And you heard sort of what we were talking about before with the two gentlemen that bought all the recording equipment, Barry Shankman and Leonard Lubin. And, you know, it's one of those things where stacks, you know, goes, you know, leaves, comes back to Memphis after fantasy records buys it. They reopen the office, David Porter is in charge of the office, mm-hmm. re-signed the bar soul children are still on the label. Um, and of course then they're putting out reissues and things, but obviously music had changed so much at that time. So Stax just really falls by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the musicians, that session musicians, um, you know, I, I don't know the exact percentage, but Maybe 50 50, give or take. Some stayed, some left. Um, you know, a still, accident started Freetone and really was a great spot for Bobby Manuel to land. He worked on the Disco Duck record. Lester Snell worked on a bunch of things there. Bobby leveraged that success, Disco Duck success, into opening a studio, at Jim Stewart. So that provided more opportunity. Plus, uh, Royal Studios is still going, Arden's still going. So, but. The stack's name just doesn't, was just sort of lost at that time. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the 80s, the property just continues to degrade. Um, And of course, you know, again, I've been in Memphis four years, and you talk to a lot of folks how. Um, they used to go in, used to be able to sneak in, and there was always stuff there, and um, even after they knocked the building down, you could still find things, and people pilfered bricks and, and and that kind of stuff, but it just was this sad state of affairs. It just kept degrading and degrading, and you know, there were some people that tried to bring it back late 70s, early 80s. There's a guy here in the commu- community named Mohammed Ziad, who was a close confidant of Al Bell, um, really one of the only people that stuck by Mr. Bell during, his, the, during the federal trials, mm-hmm. and, and he he got it in with union planners bank and, and some other folks here in the city and really tried to tried to tried to make something happen. And it just wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the right time. The economy wasn't great and there just wasn't a lot of interest in it stacks at that point, but he had access to the building. He was the last person that had access to the building really. So he still has the keys for the front door. Really? Yeah. Amazing. Um, and so uh, you know, again, it just through there, there were never really a, a, an effort to, to, try to try to keep things going or try to make something happen, and then just m- music in Memphis changed too. Tourism really was just in its infancy at that point- m- music, tourism didn't exist till august sixteen. you know basically what august seventeenth nineteen seventy seven mm-hmm. when two hundred thousand people show up at elvis's funeral
0: mm-hmm.
1: um or for the the procession down what eventually becomes elvis Presley boulevard so it uh it was just the 80s were a really tough time and the building keeps degrading and then in 1989 the building is sold to a church down the street the South Side uh, Church of God in Christ for $10 um, and they're going to tear the building down and build a soup kitchen community center type of thing and so the building's leveled and then it's this vacant lot and when so much of the music here the music ecosystem in, in in memphis went downhill after stacks closed it was such a huge part of it um plastic products closes within the next decade um the pressing plant that was here but also the pressing plant down in Coldwater, mississippi too um and it's just it just really hurt hurt the ecosystem hurt the hurt the music economy and so it just there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a ton of interest in what, in what was going on. And, and so the building falls apart. And then, but also the Souls of USA neighborhood, you know, you know it's, it falls on rough times too. It's just, you look at those photos from the late 60s and it's so vibrant, what Macklemore looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the late 70s, a lot of that has dried up. And, and even now, um, there's three open businesses really between... Elvis Presley Boulevard and Mississippi Boulevard, which is about a mile stretch. And that's us, Memphis Rock's climbing gymnasium and Miss Shirley's beauty shop. And that's really it. Mm-hmm. So even today, it's, it's still difficult to, to, to start a small business in our neighborhood. And so it just was the church tried to raise money. Nothing was going on. And then finally, by the mid to late 90s, there was some interest in, in claiming this as a historic site or the Tennessee historical commission and their marker program, because stacks might not have been in prominence here in Memphis and it might have fallen, fallen by the wayside in the United States. But of course, Europeans, especially our friends over in England, Mm -hmm. um, It never died over there. I mean, I read some statistic the other day. Aaron Cohen just wrote this really great book about Chicago Soul. Mm -hmm. And there's a statistic that I've never read in there before, and it was in 1966, 40% of the records sold in England were R&B records. Wow. And you read that, it's like, okay, now I know why. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now I know why. I just talked to a group of British tourists yesterday that were all over the age of 70, 70, 75, probably. Mm -hmm. Now I know why the European tour was such a big thing in 67, right?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so people kept coming by and taking photos and again looking for bricks and that kind of thing so Mr. Ziad comes back into the picture and helps lead the efforts to to do this historical marker And I think he actually wrote the text for it. And so now there's something that says this is where Stacks Records was. Mm -hmm. And then late 90s, 1999 um, is when it starts to, when there's an effort that coalesces with a couple local business leaders. And then what I call Stacks alumni, in this case, uh, uh, Ms. Deanie Parker, who is the director of publicity at Stacks, had left the city for a while, had come back and had a long and successful career in, in 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 here in the community but was really the discussion started that we could do something here mm-hmm. and so Soulsville what eventually becomes Soulsville Foundation our overarching organization starts in 1999 2000 the Sax Music Academy opens in the cafeteria of Stafford Elementary School uh, after school 2003 uh Sax Museum of American Soul Music opens and then 2000 uh, um five, the Soulsville charter school opens. And so now we, we serve over 800 kids a day on our campus and it's a pretty remarkable thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And a lot of work went into like making the building look like it mm-hmm. did. That's the thing. Like I didn't actually know the story of it getting torn down the first time I went mm-hmm. that because it looks like when you look at the book, you know, I books and pictures of the old building, it looks exactly the same basically
1: yeah so yeah that front that front piece it's basically it looks like two it sort of has the the the, the early and the late so the marquee is obviously the the big thing that 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 has been recreated mm-hmm. the only piece of the original building that still exists is the white tile work that's on the front that says stacks record company okay. so this developer named Sidney schlenker who's an infamous name here in memphis he's the one that developed the what is now the Bass Pro Pyramid, but it was. oh yes, the, uh... um, he and his group, um, along with uh, Jimmy Ogle and some other people here, eventually saved that tile from being destroyed, and so it was on display at the Mississippi River Museum on Mud Island for a number of years, and then when the Stacks Museum opened, Jimmy and his crew moved it over, moved it over here, and reinstalled it. So that's that's the only original piece of okay. the entire building. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, those blue panels on the left side of the front door, when you're looking at it on the left side, that's original to that post '68 era after they closed the front door. Because we always talk about stacks having having an open door, which sounds so cheesy, but it's completely true. Mm-hmm. And until '68, that was the case. The front door was always open. And then after '68, when there were some threats of violence after the King assassination, some threats of violence towards some people in the uh, that worked in the building, and, and some and some confrontations with some folks in the neighborhood that's when they decided that they had to secure the facility closed up the front door put the gate in the back and then surrounded the parking lot with with uh, with fencing um so yeah and then so the blue panels the marquee and then to the right of the marquee is where the signage is for the satellite record shop which of course was what estelle Axton ran and that signage is was pretty close too and then the rest of it it sort of reflects kind of a, a storefront scene you know stacks grew they eventually took over that whole part of the block mm-hmm. they originally didn't have all of that space but eventually took all that over so by the time 75 came along they had grabbed all of it and and you know we have these kind conver- we get people that come in a lot and say you know oh it's too bad they tore the original building down and so on and you know the, story, the preservationist in me is gonna is is gonna be mad at me for saying this, but for I think for the long term, it was probably for the ability for us to do what we've been doing since 2003. It probably was for the best in some mm-hmm. ways. Um, they had chopped that building up so much, and you know, re- moving things around and moving walls and cre- I mean, and construction materials and doing things quickly and wood paneling and shag and all of that stuff, yeah. but you know the the desire to if it had, if it had stayed if they hadn't knocked the building down had they uh, restored it and if they would have done it the right way, great. But it would shudder to think what they would have found
0: inside. Right. The, no. the fact that, like, Steve Cropper is doing some construction in the early days. Yeah. <laughs> it's I mean it's, like, He's it's, a teenager who knows how to play guitar. Is the guy, like, responsible for pulling the chairs out. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's such a DIY effort. And, I mean, yeah. and when you look at the final sort of floor plan, um, you know, as Isaac Hayes and David Porter became more successful, they got bigger offices Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then kind of displaced other folks around. And when Mr. Stewart left, they took over his space. And so there's a lot of cool stuff in those offices. Um, I wish we had one of the things that we lack a lot of. And again... There's some Thankfully, there's some good photos um, that Ms. Parker uh, has. Pete Bishop who used to work at the studio, took some great photos. There's some photos from some advertising things that they did. They did this big ad for their slogan was where everything is everything. And they took photos of the people that worked there along with the artists. So there's some other additional photos from that. But there's just not, I just want to see more of the offices. I want to see more Mm -hmm. of where they work. But again, I don't take a picture of my office. Right. (laughs) Except when I put a new poster on the wall and send it to my wife. (laughs) You know, it's just, you don't, you don't take pictures of the everyday. You don't document the everyday, especially not then. Now it's easy with, with phones, but they just didn't do that. Mm -hmm. And so sure. They took photos of Mr. Stewart's office when he first moved in and they have photos of Isaac and his office and things. And some are color, a lot of, most of them are in black and white. But there's really very few sources for that type of thing, right. um, and that's really the case with a lot of studios in here, which is why the space we're in here here mm-hmm. in Onyx is awesome, because they have restored it, you know, back and, um, you know, I think that that would be one of the things that uh, you know everybody asks, like, what are the things you wish you you had, you know, for the collection, and it's like more more documentation of the space. There's only, as far as I know, I've only seen three photographs of the record shop.
0: Okay. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, it's a store, right? A, like how often are you seeing like a, a picture of your local target or yeah, something? Right. And like, so,
1: you know, and of course everybody, everybody, you know, we, we, we talk about, wouldn't it be great if we could make the store look the way it used to. And then I see the pictures of the store and I just see a bunch of records on the shelves. and like, no, I think we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll try to find some more pictures of it and then we can put up the pictures, mm-hmm. but it was, a, it was, it served a function, right? you know, it was not a designer space mm-hmm.
0: and they weren't thinking that this will be a thing in 50 years that people know, <laughs> yeah. definitely
1: not. And yeah. like, that's the, I mean, it's just, it's, all, like, uh, it's like you said, it's 50 years of hindsight. It's easy for me to say, mm-hmm. so I wish they would have, I wish they would have like, they're too busy making records. Right. <laughs> so yeah. they weren't thinking about this stuff I think about. I don't make records.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you guys had a, sp- you found a speaker that they literally cut instead of like doing the, the actual, taking the time to wire, yeah. they just cut the end and taped it.
1: Yeah. And then, so there's just, you know, there's, they were just, too busy. There's, yeah. They're too busy. Like yeah. it's just, they're in a session, you know, the clock's running probably. Um, everything was union scale. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was just get them in, get them out. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, they, the original studio monitors, um, we had them in the in the museum for a long time and they were blue and it just i became friendly with the guys at Eggleston Works Speakers here in the city who do amazing amazing work and met them and they came over and we were looking at just looking at stuff cuz i had another set of speakers and so we just got a screwdriver and just took the backs off and cuz i you know i just asked like you guys are speaker nerds. Like, tell me about these things. And they have all tech horns and all and the drivers and everything. And so, yeah, we could get some new crossovers and like, we'll find the right pieces and stuff. And then we took the one, it was the, I mean, it doesn't matter if left or right, but the one that we had not, the second one that we had opened and we pulled it out and there was somebody had thrown like a, a plastic cup that they had drank a beer out of in there after an event. And there was you know, gum wrappers and stuff and stuff in there, but we pulled the back off And yeah, all this wiring comes out and it's just all this jumble of wires and yeah, you can see where they had cut the wires instead of I mean, it literally was just like unscrew, rescrew, it's a Uh pull thing out and throw no one in there, throw a new one in there. So yeah, I mean they it's a we talk about this when we give tours and this is one of the things I love about stacks and especially those early days so much was you know this like again we were just talking to these guys, Brad and Jason about the the purpose built nature of this place Sachs is the least purpose built <laughs> studio that it maybe ever exists but they turned it into something i mean it was to- we we call it a happy accident in a mm-hmm. lot of ways like they just they went into the space they pulled out the seats they had this big room they had the sloped floor and they're like okay well we need to make it smaller so let's divide it in half so they use you know Ceiling tile, basically, that they buy at the hardware store. Four-by-eight sheets of plywood. Ms. Axton makes some burlap curtains to divide the space. Create this amazing bass trap. They have the slope of the floor, and I haven't taken physics since 11th grade. Um, but there's something about, you know, when you have two non-parallel surfaces, the sound is not going to bounce. Will not does not bounce around as much, and and, and you can capture it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And so we always say, well, Mr. Stewart didn't want to spend the money to level off the floor. Well, that's partially true, but also as they figured it out, like, mm-hmm. and it's all trial and error, it's DIY, and it's all young people mm-hmm. that are doing this stuff. It's just amazing. I mean, Mr. Stewart was in his, was 30, around 30 when he was doing this. So of course, Steve and Duck and Don Nix and Packy and all those kids. I mean, they're kids. They were 17, 18, 19 years old. And then once Booker and David Porter and and those guys, you know, start coming into the studio too, um, it's just figuring out like where do we put the mics, <laughs> where where should we put our stuff, um, and then you had old heads like Al Jackson, who you know everybody looked to as this this figure of prominence because he was incredibly good and was been playing professionally and playing out since he was you know in a very young age, then they just sort of worked it out. You know, not not just in terms... Obviously, they worked it out in terms of the content and the music that they were making, but the space and how to use the space. And, yeah, they had leaks and mice and all kinds of stuff. And um, But they made it work. And then, you know, eventually Studio A was the thing. And then they added a studio... I mean, Studio B was on the other side of the space, and they formalized that and made that into a recording space. And then they even added Studio C, which was a demo space. So they had everything under one roof. And it's pretty amazing to go from... All of that from a 400-seat theater in 1960 to, you know, essentially three studios by the early 1970s.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about the museum in specifics, like, why, do you know why they made the decision to tell the story of soul music from the beginning, because mm. I think you know, you go to the Motown Museum; it's the story of Motown. Mm-hmm. It's not the story of you know, you don't start in a church like you do at the Stax Museum. Yeah. So, do you, like, talk about that part of the Stax Museum, because it's really it's the museum of soul music with Stax as like the starring the yeah. starring f- f- feature. Yeah. Yeah, I
1: mean, we are the Stax Museum of American Soul Music, and we talk a lot about we have conversations about that a lot at the museum and um all music comes from somewhere and i think being where we are in memphis tennessee um the roots of so many of the artists that played at stacks um starting in the church um and it's just as close as we are to the delta and being this being part of you know a stopover either temporary or permanent from the great migration up up and over and of course up to chicago and detroit and cleveland and indianapolis and everywhere else too um it just is it's just a big part of of who we are and where we land and gospel music was always part of the the story at stacks um you know chalice was the second subsidiary label they started after after they did volt Mm -hmm. satellite to then stacks and Volt and then chalice um and they of course had gospel truth in the 70s too so since obviously so much of the talent that played at stacks came from came from the churches too but it's such an important foundational thing for people to sort of really understand and really get about where this music comes from i love it because it lays something pretty bare we don't say this in the museum but i, I talk about it on tours which is this tension between, you know, doing good and doing bad.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the okay. central tension of soul music yeah, the, but, and, yeah. and country music and right. pretty much everything I like to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this, it's this thing about, um, you know, sin on Saturday, Saturday night and salvation on Sunday morning. And then, so it's this push and pull that, so, I mean, not just musicians, but humanity deals with all the time, but I think it bears itself out in the music so much. And you see that through the biographies, obviously people like Sam Cooke and some other great artists too, and lots and stacks. I mean Johnny Taylor, you know, mm-hmm. has a strong gospel background, and and replaced Sam Cooke, right? In the soul. Yeah, story, he so. did. Yeah. So you I mean you have all that, and um, so I think that's also part of it too, and it's just this sort of got the gospel impulse that I think really just drives a lot of a of lot of what we do. Or uh, a lot of what a lot of what they did at the you know within within the music you know one of the things we go from the church into here's all the different types of music that lead into solo music mm-hmm. and you know I think one of the things that I've you know when you look at the original plans for the museum they didn't have the church when they originally planned the museum mm-hmm. they didn't have Isaac's car when they originally planned the museum mm-hmm. either so there's all these other kind of interesting pockets and stories that they wanted to tell and a lot of it is about other soul scenes so it's more about new orleans and chicago mm-hmm. and, and, and such and and so that is one of the things i wish we could do more of is talk about how we since we are the Stax museum of american soul music and um Stacks or soul music exists beyond Memphis and exists Mm -hmm. beyond Motown. And we could have a long argument about whether or not Motown soul music, if you, if you want to, (laughs) Uh, not, probably
0: not, but nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. Not on, Uh, not on this podcast um, at least. Yeah.
1: But, uh, but you can, um, but it's, it's, it's everywhere, you know, it's everywhere in this country. Um, and especially when there's so much Memphis is kind of the place where the, is the heart of the Southern soul Memphis Muscle Shoals, Nashville, or I guess are the kind of the three, uh, the, the the pins on the map for the for Southern soul music, um, but it's just so influential everywhere else. And again, a lot of that just comes from that church that 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 church inspiration.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so telling that full story is giving yeah. a more complete picture of stacks in a way. It's not in a vacuum.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and that's again one of the things that I think. We, we will do a better job of going forward um, is we have to you know placing stacks within a stronger context within the history of memphis and the history of the south too um, you know we we talk a lot about stacks the uniqueness of stacks being an integrated workplace in in, in, a, in a very segregated city um, but there's so much more to that story too and there's mm-hmm. so much more to about to tell about what was going on in memphis um, politically culturally socially how blacks and whites interacted with each other up to that point and long before that point point. Um, and then obviously what was going on during the 1960s leading up to the king assassination and afterwards um, but that's an important part of, of the story too I mean we always make the argument that what what they did at stacks could only happen in Memphis It just it just doesn't happen anywhere else mm-hmm. um, and and just in term in how it went from something that was, organic and then became something much more much more than that very quickly mm-hmm. very quickly
0: yeah i mean green onions is the first like official stacks record right that like yeah
1: yeah i mean it's because it, it, i love you is the first one that sort of puts memphis r&b on the map i mm-hmm. guess and then yeah green onions is shortly thereafter and then and that's
0: a huge um, massive pop hit that, yes yeah.
1: exactly it's i mean when we play it it's it's sort of or we it was we did a bicentennial celebration this year so it's okay. a 200 it's the Memphis bicentennial the Shelby County bicentennial and then so we decided to do the bicentennial so we had a list of 200 Memphis soul songs that we had a Spotify playlist and then you could vote so we had in person balloting at the museum and a couple of record shops around town and then we had an online ballot and so you could Green Onions was the leader on day one, Mm -hmm. and on day 40, whatever, I think we had a 45 day, and on day 45, like, it just, it ran, it ran the table. Like, it never really questioned that it was gonna, that it was gonna win, and it's such a ubiquitous song, even if you don't know the title of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Booker T was on Jimmy Fallon last night. And they were talking about Green Onions and the, and the Roots played it. And people say, Jimmy said, have you heard of Green Onions? And like four people clapped and then they started playing it. And they're like, oh, yeah, we all yeah. know that song. Like it's never going to leave our consciousness. And that's
0: amazing. Right. Yeah. And I actually was in my Airbnb last night and turned on TV and there was Forrest Gump. And it's in, <laughs> it's in I mean, it's in
1: Forrest Gump.
0: And I was yeah. just like, yeah, you know, but yeah.
1: And it's, uh, and I think it's, it's a testament, obviously, to their talent and to their, and and to the skill that they had. But again, it does come back to, to me, this whole story always just comes back to Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton and later Al Bell, but Mr. Stewart and Ms. Axton giving these young people a chance to make that music. Mm -hmm. Like it, yes, it was a business, but in order to become the business it became, it had to start somewhere. And so it's giving these young people a chance. It's giving them an opportunity to figure this stuff out without having, without somebody looking over their shoulder, without somebody throwing charts at them and saying, here, play this. Mm -hmm. It's like, Hey, we got an A set. What do you want to do for a B set? Well, I was doing this thing on the piano and so on and so forth. And then Steve adds a lick and then Mm -hmm. Al comes in and Louie comes in and then you got, you got a song, you got a classic. And, that's the story that's the story to me that I think is is so powerful is that y- young people could come to stacks could work at stacks if they could play they could play if they couldn't play but they could contribute something else they were given the opportunity to contribute something else whether it be working in the gift shop working for the working in the mail room learning how to work behind the scenes, whatever it was getting paid to do it mm-hmm. And giving getting those opportunities, and then using sort of that organic workforce that was around them in the Soulsville, USA neighborhood to, mm-hmm. to do that. It's just it's it's unprecedented.
0: Yeah, and what happens to stacks if they don't move to that specific neighborhood? We're not like we're not sitting here. Yeah, I know, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, because the fact that you know you you know Booker T grew up around the corner, and you know that. Well,
1: it's 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 access, you know. It's mm-hmm. it's. I think that's what's so. You know, communicating the Stacks story to young people is a difficult thing. It's becoming, it's like you know, we all talk about that in Memphis a lot. This idea between Memphis as a, a music city of the past and a music city of the present, and like this. The, I mean, there's not tension, but it's sort of like, what do you push? Well, obviously, when you got Elvis and you got Sun and you got stacks, you're going to push those three things. It's a pretty strong. 3 right, right. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, there aren't many cities on earth that no, can touch no, no, that no. really yeah
1: and but there's yeah. all these amazing young artists here in the city now that mm-hmm. have used all that stuff as building blocks to create their own art And so we talk a lot about that and what's going to sustain. And so for young people, you know, the music that they're listening to, pop music and stuff, is so a lot of it is so far removed from sax. It Mm -hmm. used to be ten years ago you could rely on samples, right? And say, you know, here's a sample. Well, now it's creation of new beats, Mm -hmm. which has become an art form unto itself. And so, and we get into a lot of arguments about whether or not about that amongst old. The older, older folks
0: around, yeah, around think the museum. Yeah, people and, our age will be, yeah, we're, we're cool with it. Yeah. Rap, yeah. <laughs> and Rap so, is good. Yeah. <laughs> so there's,
1: but we have a lot of conversations about that. So trying to talk to high school students about a music that isn't even their grandparents' music anymore, mm-hmm. you know? And so how do you, what are the ways that you can do it? Well, you got to tell a story. You got to tell a story about people. Everybody's people. If you can tell a story about a teenage kid that grew up in this neighborhood that walked around the corner, walked in the front door and was given a chance to do something, that might be the spark that they need to take a chance, to take a risk, to seek out an opportunity like that. And obviously, we pro- can provide that opportunity at the Stax Music Academy with mm-hmm. our after-school program and then at the charter school with the academic program there. So that, to me, is what our, our hook is gonna be going forward. And, and so we're so blessed to have this other, these other parts of our organization to tell that part of the story mm-hmm. um, and to c- continue that story and to keep it rolling. So we can always make it relevant through that. And so we don't always have to rely on the fact that once sadly all of our artists are, are, are gone, That, like, well, well, they're all gone. We don't have anything we can do anymore. You know, the music's going to live on, but those stories are going to live on, and those touch points will live on, too. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and you want to talk a little bit more about the the Academy, like, how closely... It seems like it's a, you know, a joint organization, and you guys are... You're really working together.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the... you know, Deanie Parker, you know, being one of our founders and 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 the and the folks that she worked with, you know, decided obviously building a museum from scratch is a daunting project, and so it was going to take some time. But they knew that they could start with something immediately and make a difference. And so it was with the music academy and providing after-school music instruction for. For young people, one, that didn't have access to that type of music instruction, but two, just providing after school activities, too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we talk about one of the biggest issues we face is transportation, is the A to B. Um, And so it really precludes not just young people, people of all ages from getting to work, seeking out opportunities, volunteerism, whatever that might be. So they started it in this cafeteria at the school down the street from what eventually became the museum. And then it grew into its own thing. So, I mean, they've, they, they use the stacks catalog and the stacks story as its foundation. I mean, that's, they do stacks one-on-one, you know, and, and they have access to, you know, they have a great new executive director there, Pat Mitchell Worley. She's not that new. She's been around for more than a year now, but, um, Pat's worked in the music industry here in Memphis for a long time and so and she and her staff have great connections in the city so plus the historical connections too so the young people get a lot of exposure to to people that are that yes they made music but they're also making music mm-hmm. and the program has evolved too you know it's yes it's still the rhythm section so they still do R and B music, they still do soul music, but and they still do jazz and they still have vocal, They uh, still have the Street Corner Harmonies, which is their vocal choir. But now they have a beats program, now they have a spoken word program, and now they have a production program. So when we'd work with them at the museum, and you know, obviously we were we were, we are under the same umbrella and we work together, but we still do se- we do separate programming and mm-hmm. and, and so on. But, you know, when we work with them, their young people are running the show at a variety of different levels now, which is, which is great. Yeah, and before it was just performance, but now it's performance plus all of these other things. And so really sh- teaching, showing these students and teaching these, sh- these students sort of the front-to-back exposure to the music business is, re- is really great. Um, I mean, they're, 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 they're our strongest messenger. They're the best marketing we could ever have, mm-hmm. um, you know, here in Memphis, they play every year at Levitt Shell and Overton Park at the Band Shell for their summer finale. And, you know, they play to 3,500 people um, who a lot of folks have not... I mean, again, it's that thing you fall into where you live in the city and you've got these... You've got Graceland, Sun, and Stacks, and, well, you don't go because you live here. Mm-hmm. You know, you just don't think unless you take your cousin to town or your cousin's right. in town, so you bring them. But, um, but that's incredible exposure because it, it does... You know, these young people playing this music incredibly well um, turns on new people all the time, and and being able to go and work with artists like Justin Timberlake, which they did recently, and and work with some of the artists they have in the past, and play all over the world, and then that sort of thing is really just incredible exposure. And that's the other thing that's going to always keep us relevant too um, mm-hmm. is when you, when you have the young people that are playing playing it. Playing it actively and being actively involved with it is different than passively, passively sure. listening, you know, when you have to seek it out. But this is, these are young people that are actually doing it and they're taking it places and sharing it with people. It's a pretty powerful story. And I think one of the best things that we're, we're really doing now is uh, providing more opportunities for the, the young people to write, produce, record, and perform original music too. Um, and it's so good. Like, it's just, it, the the five songs that they did with Justin worked on with Justin Timberlake and his crew back in um, back in the summertime were just they just blew me blew me away mm-hmm. I mean, and so like let's put this record out let's you know let's <laughs> do it now um, and uh, so I think the future is pretty bright and I think it can only help ha- it only help us too I mean I think it's the it's the it's just all of these things put together I think will keep this music relevant and. And keep our lights on too.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess to finish, let's talk about uh, specific exhibits in the mm-hmm. museum. So the people that are listening to this, uh, I like want to strongly encourage to come. It's like I think it's my favorite museum on earth. Thanks. Um, and I'm not just saying that because you're sitting here, but <laughs> um, and we're from the same town. And, yeah, we're from the same same area. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, the thing that blew me away the first time I went was the fact that Isaac Hayes's car mm-hmm. is there. How did they get that? Do you know the story there? Mm-hmm. Like, because it's a really funny place in the museum too. I thought because you're like looking at the music stuff, and then you like turn around, and there's this you know expensive looking Cadillac, gleaming gleaming
1: yeah. vehicle on a turntable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It um so Isaac Hayes had a number of cars mm-hmm. when Stax was successful. <laughs> The artist had a number of cars. Mm-hmm. Um, artists, musicians buy cars.
0: Yes, yes. they do. It just, yeah. They still do. Yeah, yeah. William Bell told me he had cars in like multiple cities when oh, he yeah. was really big in stacks. Yep. Yeah, like he just had a car here and they, he was living in Atlanta. Like, they had yeah. drivers. Um, <laughs> yeah. They had purple ones,
1: yellow mm-hmm. ones. And in Isaac Hayes' case, uh, Peacock Blue mm-hmm. with 24 karat gold-plated enhancements mm-hmm. on a 1972 Cadillac. And so... You know the way we present it is this is this is what you get when you get it, when you win an Oscar, kids, um, which is partially true, mostly mm-hmm. true. But he um, won the Oscar for Best Original Song for "Theme from Shaft," obviously first uh, black artist to win win a music Oscar, and um, renegotiated his contract with Stax after that. And this was part of the contract, so it was six thousand dollars, twenty eight thousand dollars, right around there. Um, and so he had had a Cadillac before, he had a 71, he had a white one, which actually, about a year and a half ago, somebody sent me an email and said, this was Isaac Hayes' Cadillac before the one you have, would you be interested? And I was like, <laughs> well, I mean, for our, for our company car. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but, you
0: know. Yeah, we can't, we're not a parking garage. Yeah, we,
1: we can't <laughs> do two Cadillacs. Um, yeah. We're not, we're not Graceland. Graceland's got lots of Cadillacs. Yeah. But, um, but so it's 1972 uh, Peacock Blue Cadillac, 24-karat gold plating uh, enhancements. If any of you have seen the movie Superfly, it's the same sort of headlight covers that are on um, uh, pre-scar in, in, in Superfly. Um, Gold-wired wheels, gold-wire wheels, a um, sort of a tortoise shell, turquoise tortoise shell vinyl top or uh, uh, on the car obviously custom matches the interior the interior is also custom um of course being both of us being from wisconsin <laughs> having a car with thick white shag in it in the in the winter time is a non-starter no good. that'll no, be no, no, no. black slushy. and yeah slushy yeah. um so but thick white shag in the uh on, on the floorboards tv in the front seat and then refrigerator and wet bar in the back and and so the coolest thing to me, I mean, there's a lot of cool things about this car. The car in and of itself is 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 our aha, our wow right. piece. Um, and so it's on a turntable and it spins around. And I'll talk a little bit about sort of the symbolism of it. But what it, it's so fun for me, and I think for all of us at the museum, to talk to people that remember seeing the car around town. Mm. because And beyond just his friends and people he worked with. Because he, I mean, he used to... He lived pretty close to the museum, uh, pretty, pretty close to the studio. He lived off South, South Parkway. Um, well, he lived in a bunch of different places, but he he had a house off South, South Parkway. So he was pretty close. And obviously, there was a younger staff, so they had kids. And so, he, I mean, he would pick kids up and pick them up from school and take them places and, you know drive it, drive it around on the weekend. So people remember the car in the neighborhood, which Mm -hmm. I think is, which is very cool. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, he had a driver and, and air drivers, you know, off and on. So I've talked to a couple of them about, you know, driving the car around and such. And it, um, it's just such, it's just such a great iconic piece. And so Isaac, Like, a lot of artists, you know, fell on hard times. And he himself had a bankruptcy auction in 1977 as well, and the car was... um uh, was sold in the bankruptcy auction. So the guy that bought it was actually the Lazarov family from here in town, which owned salvage yards. Okay. And so they had it for a number of years and he, the old man would drive it around on weekends and drive his grandkids around. So I've met his grandchild, his, his, I think it's grandson or his son. He's friends with our director. Um, and he remembers that car being driven around. And then there's some other stories, some of which I can't, I, I won't share that I can't cause I can't really confirm them. <laughs> Um, but that, to me, that, that car just represents so much, you know, and it is, it represents sort of the height of, to me, black economic achievement, uh, artistic achievement. Um, and it just represents sort of this attainable thing. Like it's a, it's a, it's a physical representation of something that nobody Isaac Hayes never would have thought what it was attainable when he was living with his grandmother when he was mm-hmm. living in Covington when he was you know a student at Manassas High School and he was working in the meatpacking meatpacking plant like none of that was even remote you know in his in his in his mind that that could happen and then it did mm-hmm. and because of him of him being a musical genius. Mm -hmm. And he had a lot of help and he worked with a lot of amazing musicians. And there were people that behind him that helped worked with him to create that image that sold so well from Hot Buttered Soul forward Mm -hmm. and Black Moses and, and all of that. But at the center of it though is somebody that understand understood music in a way that is incredibly rare. And I think it's a it's a tribute to to me, he's just, he, it's, he touched, he touches all these different points in like Memphis music. You know, he's, he's went to Manassas High School. And so he has exposure to these incredible student band programs and these amazing band teachers that, you know, were, were incredible players themselves, but taught people like Charles Lloyd and Harold Mayburn, um, at Manassas High School and these great musicians that came out of Booker T. Washington, like the Barquays and David Porter and, and, and um, um, some of these other folks, um, and then you've got Isaac, who sort of comes in, and then he starts playing with Floyd Newman and, and playing over in West Memphis and comes in as Stacks as the backup keyboard player when Booker goes to college. Mm-hmm. And then, just again, it's the opportunity thing. It's like he's in the door, and mm-hmm. he's in the door. And so he can, like, oh, you're here to play organ, you're here to play, play piano. And then, like, well, here, you can write songs. Well, you should maybe work with this guy. And this guy's David Porter. And then, you know, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. But his ability to hear music, his ability to um, to compose, to arrange, to feel, to understand an audience, to communicate, is just par- unparalleled in my mind. So that car, represent to me, represents all of that, too. Mm-hmm. And so it is it is sort of this success piece. But then... I don't want to bring everybody down, but then it also is sort of like this. It's like to me that's the peak, and it is Mm -hmm. sort of the peak of the museum too. It's like it's the it's the shiny thing, and then after that, you know, you kind of go down a hallway and around a corner, and then you're kind of out and you're in the gift shop. Mm -hmm. But it does represent sort of that highest height, and it's you know it's not to me it's not ironic that it's a 1972 Cadillac. Mm -hmm. 1972 is you could argue the the last great year in, in stacks history culminating in the Watts stacks festival. So there's a, there's a lot there, I think. Um, and really a lot of this, I will be honest, didn't really cross my mind until we did some, we've been doing some planning work and we were in a session in, in, in June with some folks, um, staff members and some outside folks and the kind con- we were talking about the car and car. course everybody loves a car. We're talking about ways we could display it and things we want to do. And then just somebody made some passing comment and I was driving home and like pretty much everything I just said to you just sort of hit like washed over me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh my God, I've never thought about this car in this way before. And it's, so I think it just represents so much more. And, but at the base level, it's the awesome thing in the museum. <laughs> so, see.
0: It's a deeply symbolic car but it's also awesome awesome. and and you know we
1: talk about in the museum world you know you you talk yes symbolism and narrative and all those things but sometimes it's okay just to have cool stuff Mm -hmm. like it's cool it's just we can just let it ride with that and we'd be okay
0: And that's it for this season of VMP Anthology. Thank you so much for taking this journey with us on what is our fourth trip through the catalog of a storied label. This box set and project was a clear passion project for me, obviously. And it's amazing that I was able to work somewhere where I got to do this. And that's thanks to you out there buying this box set and listening to this podcast. Thank you all so much. Make sure you scan your QR code to take advantage of all the extra content, audio and written, that we made to accompany you on this journey. A special thanks to Michelle Smith at Stax Records for literally making this podcast possible. Thanks to the artists and writers and folks who sat down with me for this. And thanks to the studios and engineers who helped me along the way. I'm still new to doing podcasts and what you're listening to would not be possible without a lot of people working behind the scenes. This season of VMP Anthology was executive produced, written and hosted by me, Andrew Winnesdorfer. It's produced by Gabe Harder. This episode's interview is recorded at American Recording Studio in Memphis with engineering by Jason Gillespie. Voiceovers engineered by Jonah Graver. Special thanks to Brad Dunn at American Recording Studio and Jeff Kolath at the Stacks Museum. I sign off with this final reminder. Listen to more David Porter.